Good evening, everybody. Welcome, welcome to our ninth class. Um, our ninth class in the Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell class. We are getting very close now to the end. We are theoretically finishing our discussion of the book today. I am under no illusions we'll actually complete it today, uh, but we have that extra class next week uh, in order to make sure that we get through everything we want to get through. So, um, uh, that's, uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, so, so next, so don't forget next week we do have that, uh, we do have that open class. I've already received a few, uh, questions. I, I'm, I, please do email me, um, Olson at mythgard.org will work. Um, any questions that you might have about uh, the uh, or suggestions that you might have for discussion topics or anything like that uh, for the next class, and we'll see how much of that we can get through next time. And then after that, we'll talk about the mini series. So I hope that you have either seen the mini series. I still haven't seen it yet. I've been saving myself till after because I I know I'm going to get distracted once I watch the mini series. I'm going to want to be making references to it. So I've been saving myself until we finished our discussion. Um, of uh, until we finish our discussion of the whole book, and then I'm going to go back and uh, and I'm and now I'm going to I'm 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 probably during this coming week going to go through and watch the miniseries. So I'm uh, uh, so I'm excited. So I hope that you will get a chance to watch the miniseries between now and two weeks from tonight is when we will begin the discussion of that. So. Um, okay, quick announcement before we begin. In addition to the normal things that we have, the normal sort of weekly functions this week, um, namely, uh, we've got a Silmarillion, a uh, film episode, uh, Silmarillion film project episode this coming Friday. This is, uh, uh, this is the rescheduling. Last week we ended up having to reschedule at the last minute. Uh, last week's one, so we're going, uh, we, we shifted that through to this Friday. Then we're going to have the next one, next Friday. So we're going to have them two weeks in a row here, um, in these next two weeks. So I hope you will. Uh, be able to join me on Friday morning at 10 a.m. and then afterwards, uh, my uh, uh, my Grifflet stream on Lotro. I will be going into the f the uh, first or the first couple of the foremost instances. So if you want to see uh, uh, me uh, battle and discuss my way through uh, through through Fornost, the great uh, ruins of the great uh, military capital of the Northern Kingdom of Arthedyne, uh, you can do that starting at 12:30 p.m. on. Friday. So those are the normal things. One other uh, announcement I wanted to make in addition to the normal things this week, and that is a, a sort of a call for uh, for volunteers or sort of the, the sort of quasi volunteers in the Signum University work study program. So let me just explain really briefly what that is. Over the last year and a half or so, we have had a, a large number of people who have been doing work for us at Signum University, people who come in with different sort of skills or experience um, that we really benefit from, and in exchange, we give tuition remissions. So if you have ever wished that you could audit some of our regular semester classes or even perhaps enroll in our master's degree program, um, we will remit your tuition in exchange, essentially, for your for your volunteer hours. Um, I'm going to sort of, that, oh, well, the IRS doesn't consider it volunteer, because, of course, we're giving you tuition remission, but um, but it's, it's sort of volunteer. Um, anyway, I, I just wanted to let you know, we're, uh, I, 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 we're definitely looking for some more uh, people. We have some more openings. I wanted to just show you briefly 
the web page here. This is at the signumuniversity.org website and the jobs uh, tab. Just it gives you some uh, information about our work study program up here. And then down at the bottom, you can see the particular kinds of skills and things that we are looking for. Uh, people to help with social media stuff, anybody who has website and editing uh, experience, especially WordPress, that would be really great. Anybody who has experience with bookkeeping, we really only need basic data entry there. Um, though, of course, any experience that you have with, like, you know, Accounting terminology and stuff will be helpful for that, of course. If you have any experience with human resources stuff, that would be awesome. Um, we need help with event with event planning, with general writing and editing. Um, we have a lot of our teams that are involved in, 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 in writing and editing documents that we would really love some more help with. Um, uh, audio, and video, audio and video editing and processing. Perhaps, indeed, you could get involved in helping us, helping be the production manager of the Mythgard Academy, for instance. That's something that would, I would love to be able to find uh, somebody to do. Um, and then faculty support. This is, uh, you know, for to, to help to support our faculty teaching classes. Um, and again, the, the sort of the skills involved here are pretty basic, uh, you know, administrative assistant skills, if you know how to use, you know, office and, and that kind of thing. It's all, that's, that's, that's pretty simple. Um, if you have any interest in any of these things, or if you know anybody who would be interested, if you know anybody who, you know, maybe has seen our classes and wished that they could audit or sit in on our classes or, or take them for credit, um, but just, you know, haven't had the money to do this right now, I would, uh, um, I, I would urge you to, uh, to, to, to think about this. I, I would urge you to think about volunteering. Uh, just drop us an email at info at signumuniversity.org and we'll see what we can work out. So please do let us know if, uh, uh, if you are interested and I will, um, uh, and, and I will, uh, we'll, yeah, we'll get in touch and see what we can sort out. <laughs> Karita, no, it doesn't say, it does not say housekeeping, in fact. Uh, bookkeeping, yeah. No, it's actually one of the things, uh, uh, you know, one of, uh, uh, you know, I've had people joke about, like, uh, you know, uh, you know, our hiring groundskeepers and stuff uh, for uh, the Signum University campus. Um, uh, yeah, so, so, yeah, no, no, no. Um, we, fortunately, we don't need anything like that. Uh, so, very good. Anyway, just want to make sure you knew. Please, if you have any questions or, or again, have any uh, ideas or suggestions, please do let us know. Just want to let you know about that opportunity. Okay, let us get back to Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell then. So, uh, I wanted to start off kind of thinking about for a change. I wanted to think about English magic. Well, I want to think about fairy in particular, but, but that just kind of pushed me back for for a minute. Thinking about this question we've been discussing all the way along, what is English magic exactly? And although at first it was a kind of a question which was raised for me just by how many times people used that phrase and the pe peculiar way in which they used it. I mean, we talked about this in the very first class, how you know there seemed to be something particular, some particular kind of magic called English magic. We're trying to figure out what that was. We were trying to figure, at least I was trying to figure it out at the very beginning of the book, because it seemed like everybody but me knew already what it was, right? To me, that was the effect of reading chapter one, um, is we're, we're trying to, we're trying to, to figure this out, and, you know, and there's this constant discussion, the constant use of that term. As we go through the book, uh, it becomes... It's really interesting the way that it unfolds, because the question doesn't go away. 
right? In fact, we we come to see as we go that although everyone was talking about that term very confidently in the beginning of the book, as we go along, we come to see more and more that nobody actually really understands, or rather people have very different ideas of what English magic is. Perhaps we should have anticipated that since we were told way back in the very first paragraph of the book that if there's one thing that English magicians are all very good at, it's arguing with each other, right? Um, but uh, but nevertheless, the, the, you know, the, the, there's this sort of continual question. We begin to see the different camps kind of worked out, right? There's Norrell, to whom English magic, or modern English magic anyway, um, is magic from books, right? It's magic that you learn, from, so, you, so, so you read books written by, not really by the Oriots, because none of the Oriots really wrote anything down, but, 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 but by the Argentines, right? So Norrell's magic is essentially second-hand magic. You think about the way that Strange talks about being a magician as being an explorer, right? Remember in that debate that he had with Arabella, um, the, that, that debate which centered on the King's Roads, right? Um, where he was thinking about, you know, being a, being a magician is like being an explorer. That's not Norrell's idea, right? Norrell's idea is that, you know, it's not that he never does anything new, right? We see him making his own adjustments to spells that he learns from books, but... Um, but nevertheless, fundamentally to him, it's 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 magic that you get that has been passed down through tradition. So it's English in that sense, right? You get it from Bellasis. You know, you get it for you know this is what this writer said that Martin Pale used to do, right? Um, and uh, um, yeah, good, uh, John. That's a really great way of thinking about it. John Moline says uh, Noro is not just reading Argentine books; uh, he's also reading Strange uh, by the end. Yeah, that's true. Um, and I, I do think that 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 discussion that they have about the labyrinth at the end, right, where uh, Strange not only breaks the labyrinth but then sets up a new labyrinth, when they discuss, you know, how they did their labyrinths, it's really quite similar, right? Noro. Uh, Re- gets the spell from to shape and then he he twists it right he do, he adds something to it and strange gets it from Norrell and and does something strange to that um but uh, anyway okay so so but this is Norrell's idea the sort of fundamentally secondhand magic strange uh seems to go back at least not at the very end, but, uh, you know, thinking about the time, for instance, when Strange separates himself from Norrell, right? When he really strikes his own path, he is essentially following in the path of the Oriates, or what he believes to be the path of the Oriates, um, in their connection with fairies, right? That English magic is fairy magic, ultimately. Um, and that all of the Oriates got their magic from from their fairy servants, and this is why, the thing, when he sets off on his own, the thing that Strange wants to do is summon a fairy servant uh, who will teach him magic, right? Um, and again, this has been, of course, this is one of the central points of contention about Norrell, and Norrell continues to insist. Uh, of course, very, very, I mean, he's very consistent with this fact that the thing he has always been against is fairy magic, right? This is, this is the kind of magic that he has no tolerance for, for, with, of course, the one obvious exception when he breaks his own convictions uh, and breaks his own rules by dealing with fairies and the raising of Lady Pole, or the soon-to-be Lady Pole. Um, but you'll remember, this is that was why it was such a big deal at the time. Um, when he was first contemplating the resurrection of Lady uh, Miss Wintertown, he, um, I'm just going to call her Lady Pole, because, you know, Lady Pole. Anyway, um, 
when he's first contemplating her resurrection, you know, there's that wonderful scene where he's like sort of dithering back and forth and gosh, oh, I don't know. And Lascelles and Drawlight all assume that he's just upset that, you know, she's dying, there's nothing he can do, right? They can't imagine that he could possibly raise her from the dead. Drawlight is still imagining him doing, you know, party tricks, right? That that's what his magic must really be. He can do f- flashing light. In fact, he's probably a charlatan and should think, should have thought to bring flash powder. Remember that? Um, so, so again, from the... Ath- and remember, we've never seen it either. We've seen him make the stones talk, Right, we saw that magic, but that's the only magic we've ever seen of Mister Norrell's before at that point. So we don't even really know if it's possible. But of course, nor do we fully understand the implications of what he's planning to do and what it means. But looking back at that moment in retrospect, we can see the reason that he was all, you know, sort of verklempt at that moment is because he knows he's breaking his own principles. He knows that the only way uh, that a lady can be brought back from the dead is by making a deal with the with a fairy in the way that he's that he is going to do and that he does not want to do that he's you know so to call mr norrell a hypocrite like it's true that he is guilty of hypocrisy he did deviate um but he's not simply hypocritical right he's not just somebody who secretly practices fairy magic all the time while he's speaking against it um he did it once and saw it as a deviation, never wanted to do it again, and in fact was quite firm with the fairy, right? Resisting any possible... I mean, you think about the conversation that uh, that the fairy, you know, the gentleman with thistle, with the thistle-down hair has with Norrell, and the conversation that the gentleman has with Strange, when Strange... You know, think of all that Strange goes through. First, to summon him up, and then uh, to be able to see him and speak to him. And... Uh, uh, and you just think you think of the difference between those scenes. You think of what what, what strange wouldn't have done, right? If uh, if if the gentleman had come to him as he had come to Norrell in the beginning, right? So we see Norrell resisting that. Um, uh, but um, yeah, yeah. So anyway, it's it's. Norrell, apart from that one transgression, which he himself seems to view as a transgression, um, he. Um, he is consistent in his condemnation of fairy magic. Strange seems to embrace fairy magic almost in reaction against Norrell, but it's not just in reaction. Remember, again, that first live conversation that Strange and Norrell had on the day they first met each other, uh, and Strange puts his foot in it. Remember that when he makes those comments about like how you know he's shocked the, uh, to hear the uh, you know the 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 ignorant things said about fairy magic. Um, uh, by Lord Portishead, and, and of course it turns out that uh, that that it was Norrell's idea, and he couldn't even he obviously it never even occurred to him that Norrell would uh, be behind would be you know supporting that kind of talk about fairy magic, right? So we can see that Strange had that perspective all along, and indeed remember that Strange from the beginning, from our first introductions with him, has been associated, even if only in kind of indirect ways with fairy and with fairy magic. Remember the whole story about his father and and Jeremy Johns and and all of the weird kind of otherworldly stuff that seemed to be going on and connected with his house. Not actual fairy stuff, but again, um, we we were sort of invited, I think, um, to kind of associate the whole strange family with this sort of weird 
uh, fairy otherworldly, and not just fairy otherworldly, but cruel fairy otherworldly. I mean, his dad, Lawrence Strange, was like a wicked fairy, right? So anyway, um, it's, uh, you know, we see Strange associated with that from the beginning. So Noro is like, oh, no, it's all about secondhand book magic. Strange is like, oh, yay, fairy magic. And really, they're both wrong, right? Neither one of those things turns out to be true. Noro is kind of right about fairy, right? Um, that is to say, you know, when Noro keeps saying how, you know, untrustworthy fairies are and how malicious fairies are, yeah. Yeah, actually, that's kind of true. In fact, it, it turns out that he really has um, uh, he really has a pretty good point about that. And again, we saw this, right, several times when we actually, you know, when we just hear Norrell's opinions pass us by, right? They sound bigoted. They sound silly sometimes. They sound pretentious. They, and then, you know, and they kind of are all those things in some ways. But when he actually sits down and explains it, why he... Um, distrusts John Osglas, why he distrusts fairy magic, his reasons are actually not bad, um, and sometimes quite convincing. Um, well, let's remember, you know, we, we, we've seen several examples of sort of fairies and what fairy is, and I think it's really important, you know, we did spend some time uh, a few weeks back looking at sort of the differences between the fairy perspective and the human perspective, and just thinking about, you know, when I did my little sort of pseudo-apologia for the gentleman with the thistle-down hair, right, not saying that he's not wicked from a human point of view, but arguing that he's only wicked from a human point of view, right? And if we really take ourselves outside of the human point of view and consider the gentleman not from a purely, you know, anthropocentric point of view, um, but from a, what would be the parallel? Um, like, well, fairy-centric is just not right. There's got to be a word there. Somebody think of a word. Um, anyway, okay. Fae-centric? That works better than fairy-centric, Nancy, I agree. Fae-centric. I'll, uh, I'll go with that. I'll go with that. Um, if you think about it from a fae-centric point of view, it again, his perspective is quite different. Let's look at two, sort of two more examples to kind of remind ourselves about this. Um, this is a, a, a passage from a while back that jumped out at me, and I haven't gotten a chance to talk about it yet, but I think it's interesting in exactly this way, that is helping us to kind of shift our perspective from an anthropocentric to a fae-centric perspective. This is when Strange first comes to Lost Hope. So this is something seen, and I think it's important, something seen from the point of view of a mortal who has crossed over to fairy, the first Englishman to walk in fairy since Martin Pale. Right? Um... He passed through it, that is, through this gate, and found himself in a wide grey courtyard. It was full of bones that glimmered whitely in the starlight. Some skeletons were clad in rusting armor. The weapons that had destroyed them were still tangled with their ribs or poking out of an eye socket. Strange had seen the battlefields of Badajoz and Waterloo. He was rarely perturbed. He was scarcely perturbed by a few ancient skeletons. Still, it was interesting. He felt as if he were really in fairy now. That's an interesting comment. He felt as if he were really... And what is it about this particular battlefield with the ancient skeletons that makes him feel that he is really in fairy now? Well, one thing that jumps out at me about this passage is that I'm reminded of another conversation 
Um, do you remember the conversation between Arabella and Lady Pole when Arabella is saying goodbye to her before she and Jonathan Strange move back from London to Shropshire? Um, and she happens to mention that in the new place where she's going, you know, the, the new place where she's going to live, you know, back in her home county, um, you know, there's scarcely a field that has not seen, you know, an ancient battle at some point or other. And um, Lady Paul sort of gasps and is like, oh, ancient battlefields, how will you bear it? And Arabella's kind of confused, right? And she's like, well, no, it's fine, really. I mean, like, the battles were a long time ago. I mean, you can see there's this disconnect between them, right? Um, because Arabella can't understand what the problem is, right? Well, yeah, there were battles there hundreds of years ago. I mean, you know, like in the time of the Norman invasion and, you know, during the, the Anglo-Saxon period and stuff, but there aren't still bodies lying around, right? Time has passed, right? They're now beautiful fields. Um, the The... the knowledge that a battle once took place there just gives them a kind of a richness of history, right? It's not gruesome or anything, or disturbing, really. In any way, Arabella's just kind of confused about this. Of course, it's clear now, if we remember that scene, it's a little puzzling at the time why it is that Lady Pole reacts that way. When we see this, if we remember that, it helps us to make a great deal more sense of that, right? Because she is used to seeing, she sees this, quite frequently. This is in the very courtyard of Lost Hope. So she, anytime she looks out a window of Lost Hope, she will see this ancient battlefield, which still has its, its uh, you know, its uh, skeletons with, um, you know, the weapons that had destroyed the men still tangled in their ribs or poking out of an eye socket. Um, you know, so this gruesome scene still lying before her, not quite ever fresh, right? It's not like there are still bleeding corpses lying on the field. They're skeletons, right? Um, and yet, it doesn't go away, right? So, I, this this is it's one of the things that, um, again, thinking of uh, you know Jonathan's own sort of comment, or the, rather the narrative's, narrator's comment about how Jonathan is feeling, he felt as if he really were in fairy now, um, really kind of got me thinking um, about this scene. It's sort of thinking about, well, fairies are immortal, and what does that mean, right? How does that really, you know, what, what do we get within this book? How much is the difference in the point of view of the fairies informed by their immortality? You'd have to think quite a bit, right? And how do we see it? What what does Clark emphasize? Um in you know about the immortality of the fairies, well, and this is one of the things that we see, right? It's not just they're not just immortal in the sense that they don't die, and so they, of course, have a different relationship with things. Think about you know that we're going to, of course, we're going to come back to this. The question of the old alliances, right? Uh, Jonas Glass's old alliances, for instance. Um, well, the gentleman with the thistle-down hair has been around for so long that he himself has been in this sort of continuous relationship with the north wind and and you know all of these other strong spirits uh that he speaks of um and John exactly fairies don't value fleeting human life so you can see why i mean we made the comparison neil i think it was you who had made the comparison to ants before which seems to me um to be a perfectly just uh kind of comparison certainly uh the 
proportion of you know the our lifespan to their lifespan is certainly no more than that of an ant um and so why shouldn't they you know think of us as expendable little beasts um but um but it's not just that right there there's that and that's important but it isn't just that the fact that the battlefield is still there suggests to us that fairy not fairies but the land of fairy is immortal in a different sense too it doesn't change in the same way that England changes right that our world changes even the land itself doesn't change in that same way um and that i think is an important you know there, there is a kind of stasis remember lost hope is this kind of stasis right that's that's what that's what lady paul and stephen well, I was about to say, it's what they come back and report, ironically. That's what they can't report, or rather what nobody can understand. But um, the experience that they seem to have is that of this, this continual monotony, this unending uh, repetition of the same dull routine. Um, and uh, um, and it's... It, uh, it doesn't change. Now... Janice Hopper points out, and I, I think you have a good point, Janice. Um, she, she says that the land reflects the ruler. When Stephen Black comes in, the land changed. Yes, yes, it does. I'm not, I'm not saying that change is impossible, that nothing can occur to change anything. Uh, it, it, clearly, we have that example there at the end. I just mean, I'm just talking about the passage of time, right? Um, the, with, and I'm thinking here of the ancient battlefield here, right? Um, I would guess that the battle that made these skeletons happened probably longer ago, or at least as long ago, as the battles that happened in those fields in Shropshire, right? Um, And yet, time has not passed, they have not, you know, corroded, they have not, you know, it's the the grass hasn't covered them over. Um, uh, The, sort of, the, the memory of that battle is still always there. Um, yeah, Carita says it changes with the leader rather than with time. Exactly. Well, I mean, I, I that's 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 just what I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Janice suspects that the gentleman has preserved the battlefield in the same manner that he preserved the uh, remembrance or ceremony of throwing the children of enemies out of the tower. <sighs> yes, I th- I can agree that that fits, and certainly everything else that we see about lost hope does seem to be sort of an expression of the whim of the gentleman with the thistle down hair. But but I don't know. I'm still I uh, I still hold on to the simple connection with time. That is it's plain that time works differently in fairy. That there's just there's a different relationship with time there, and that this is one of the places where we can kind of see that there is a kind of even even the gentleman himself. That is, he doesn't change or grow. He doesn't do new things exactly. I mean, it's it's. Um, there's a kind of stagnation implicit in the name lost hope right um but um 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't want to push it too far. We see so little, and what we do see is almost all from, no, all of it, entirely from a mortal point of view. So, of course, again, the mortal span being so small, even the years that Lady Pole has been bound to the gentleman um, is still only, what, this infinitesimal drop in the bucket um, to the life of the fairy. Um, So it may well be that things are changing quite dynamically from a fairy point of view, but from a human point of view, um, it looks completely static. Um, But, uh, anyway. Hmm. That's interesting, Michael. I'd have to think about that a lot. Michael's saying, uh, Michael... Chevskowski is saying a portrait is also sort of a stagnant beauty or frozen beauty that also reflects the fairy's perspective. I have to think about that, and of course it makes me think about the portrait of Strange and Norrell. Um, I have the I have a kind of sense that there's something there, that it's a really interesting connection, but I have to think more about that. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, Let's uh, let's move forward again. Back to here, coming to the uh, to the gentleman here. Um, this is uh, one of the gentleman's final conversations with Stephen. This is the end of the description of how the gentleman discovered Stephen's name, right? Um, and we get in this conversation this forceful reminder of the difference in their perspectives. And it's interesting because, um, well, oh, I just want, let me read it first. So many people dead just to find my name, sighed Stephen. And I would gladly have killed twice that number. Nay, a hundred times. Nay, a hundred thousand times or more. So great is the love I bear you, Stephen. With the ashes that were her screams, and the pearls that were her bones, and the counterpane that was her gown, and the magical essence of her kiss, I was able to divine your name, which I, your truest friend and most noble benefactor, will now... Oh, but here is our enemy. As soon as we have killed him, I will bestow your name upon you. Beware, Stephen. Uh, there will probably be a magical combat of some sort. I dare say I shall have to take on different forms. Cockatrices, raw head and bloody bones, reins of fire, etc., etc. You may wish to stand back a little. Um, the ashes that were her screams and the pearls that were her bones. That is such a good sentence. That's like an awesome poem in one sentence, right? The ashes that were her screams and the pearls that were her bones and the counterpane that was her gown and the magical essence of her kiss. So good. Um, Karita, yeah, I, I, I think he actually did say etc., etc. I totally see uh, the uh, gentleman with the th- with thistle-down hair saying etc., etc. Um, yeah, absolutely. He sounds like exactly the kind of person who would say etc. out loud. Um, what do we see here? Remember, to me, the most compelling thing about this scene, remember at the beginning of it, right, when the gentleman is describing in this callous, horribly offhand way. Um, He is giving Stephen more details than Stephen ever had before about his own birth and the death of his mother, right? And so we get this this terrible picture of 
his mother in the hold of the of the of the the ship uh, coming over uh, coming over uh, to England, um, and it, it's presumably a slave ship, though it's going the wrong way. That is, it wouldn't be coming back towards England with a cargo you know, with a cargo hold full of slaves. Um, cargo holds full of slaves are almost all westbound boats, uh, not eastbound boats. But but anyway, she's coming back from Jamaica, wasn't it? From Jamaica uh, to to England. Um, anyway, so she's in the hold of this ship, and we, you know all of these details are coming out about her her you know her screams of agony as she is dying in childbirth, and uh, the 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 kiss that was stolen from her um, by the by the ship's captain, and of course her her body being stripped and thrown overboard, and all of these uh, all these horrible callous things. Right, and remember, to me the really amazing moment there was Stephen's reaction to that, right? Where on the one hand, his heart is hardening at the beginning of that, right? And we see him say, yeah, you know what? I've tried to put up with these English, right? He's tried to fit in. He has he has sided with them, right? He has tried to defend his master, Walter Pole, Sir Walter Pole, whom he really does seem to love and admire. And, um, but he's like, but he's like, no, that's it. I'm done. I'm done with all Englishmen. I have, you know, they're, they're such a cold, hard, haughty race, um, so we can see him turning to an almost gentleman with the thistle-down hair kind of point of view, right? It's like he, in hearing this story, is coming over to the gentleman's side, and it seems like this really important sort of moral moment, right? But then as he goes on and goes on and describes how he burns this whole family to death and then strangles this guy with the pearls and all these other things, you know, as, as he goes on and then left the poor woman to freeze to death, having stolen the counterpane. Um, and then all of the women that he killed in order to extract the magical essence of the kiss that had passed on to them. Uh, Stephen is just, is just, he's brought back around, right? The hardness that was there in Stephen's heart is softened again to pity as he hears about so many people who were killed. And the gentleman, you see how how wildly, how absolutely the gentleman has misunderstood, right? So many people dead just to find my name, sighed Stephen, right? And the gentleman completely misunderstands that. 180 degrees misunderstands that, Right? Um, he takes that as a sigh of of overwhelmed gratitude by Stephen, right? Oh, wow, so many people dead just to find my name, right? Like, I, I'm so, and it means so much to me, right, that you would kill so many people just for me, right? Um, and that's how the gentleman takes it. Oh, I would kill a hundred thousand times more people. So great is the love I bear you, Stephen. Right? And he's saying this not to correct him, not to chide him, not to be like, oh, Stephen, don't be so squeamish. Right? No, no, no. He thinks he's agreeing with Stephen. Like, oh, Stephen, don't mention it. It was nothing, really. I would have killed many more. I love you so much. I would have killed many more people than merely that. Right? Um, so I, I just as a as as a glimpse into the alienness of the fairy heart um this is i this was to me one of my favorite moments there where we see again it's not just that he completely um this is not only his own lack of concern for human life of course but his own absolute obtuseness when it comes to stephen because of course he sees everything through his own lens that is he thinks really only of himself. Um, 
often in ways which are quite delightfully uh, have a sort of a quite a delightful level of dramatic irony, right? Like when he when he talks about how horribly conceited the English magicians are, and how Jonathan Strange would only really just sit there and talk about himself. Um, yeah, yeah. Carita says that fairies seem to be not super great with reading body language. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, he's totally oblivious, completely oblivious to that. Um, and that's that's. I mean, I think that that's that's kind of essential. I mean, again, Stephen's own temptation to hatred of Englishmen is worn down, right? You know, he's he's all, he is on the cusp of just saying, "Forget it. Kill as many of them as you want." I, they, like they they're they're horrible and they all deserve to die. And then he's like, "Whoa, okay, no, no, actually, actually, compared to you, no, 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 no they don't. They really don't." Um, what Mr. Norrell says about fairies and fairy magic is kind of right, right? And in fact, the fact that we can see, as far as we can understand, the relationship that the gentleman with the thistle-down hair attempted to establish with Mr. Norrell at the beginning is probably like the relationship that the fairies had with the Orient magicians. I don't see any reason to think that that's likely not the case. That is just because, I mean, we're talking about the same fairies and they're, they're not changing a whole lot, right? So this guy's around. He has taught many English magicians. This, you know, the gentleman with the thistle-down hair, this is not his first rodeo with an English magician, right? That's pretty clear from the stories that he tells Stephen Black about the old days of London and all of these things, right? And his own experience and, and all the things that he has done before and the things that he used to do. He doesn't name any of the Orient magicians by name, as uh, having been in connection with them. Um, but it seems pretty clear that he was in connection with them. And Mr. Norrell is absolutely right to reject the gentleman. I mean, as we meet the gentleman and go on to see all the things that he does, the way that he does take advantage of Norrell's one action, right, his one sort of transgression of his own principles, it seems pretty clear the gentleman was going to be manipulating the whole thing. Right, um, that he was only ever in it for his own benefit, and that he was most—he was almost certainly going to be fulfilling his own wicked desires through Mister Norrell um, and through that relationship. So, um, and and this. Remember, the Oriates didn't write anything down. Right, all the stuff that we get about the Oriates, we get secondhand. It seems very likely that many of the Oriates were, in fact. That again, Norrell might be actually quite right about them and about the fairies. And it makes me think uh, think differently about John Usklas and John Usklas's position as we go through. Remember, when Norrell is making his quite defensible explanation for why he distrusts John Usklas, remember he says... John Osclas comes to England at the age of 14, and the first thing he does is usurp half the kingdom, right? Why would he do that? What was he doing? What, you know, what... Maybe he had a good reason for that. Remember the gentleman's words to Stephen Black and his description of London, especially, right? How, how much more wonderful... London was when he was running it, right? When everyone was coming to him. 
So what does Janos Glas do? Set up his own rival kingdom in the north, right? In which he is in charge. Not the fairies. He did not take any orders from any fairies. He was the boss of the fairies, right? He ruled a kingdom in fairy, and he ruled northern England, right? Um, so much of what Janos Glas did is mysterious. And it's one of the things that I just love about, you know, I, I, I've been talking for a few weeks about the way in which our own understanding um, sort of blossoms throughout the course of the book and how our own perspective on things changes. Not only by the, you know, as I said at the beginning of the book, it seems everybody knows more than we do and we're, we're having to scramble to figure things out. By the end, I think that we can theorize some things. We can see some things that not even the Argentines understood, right? Not even Strange understands uh, in in his book, right? Why did Jonas Glass come? Well, I've got a kind of theory about uh, why Jonas Glass came um, and what he was trying to do in the kingdom of Northern England and how it was different from the kingdom of Southern England. Um, but anyway... Um, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this stuff a little bit later. Um, let's look at, again, thinking about the relationship between sort of the human world and fairy in the moments that we get this sort of the, 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 the crossing over the boundaries. I mentioned this at the end of last time that I wanted to look at this, uh, in today's class. Um, and we're going to be looking at some examples of crossing the boundary between England and fairy, and some examples of crossing the boundary between sanity and madness, and then asking ourselves, what's the difference between those things? Because, of course, fairies and madness are associated with each other. Um, the, the audience understood this, right? Um, anyway, so let's look at a few examples of this. Whoa. Okay, here we go. Um, this is strange crossing over for the first time to Ferry. It was as if that fate which had always seemed to threaten the city of Venice had overtaken her in an instant. But instead of being drowned in water, she was drowned in trees. Dark, ghostly trees crowded the alleys and squares and filled the canals. Walls were no obstacle to them. Their branches pierced stone and glass. Their roots plunged deep beneath paving stones. Statues and pillars were sheathed in ivy. It was suddenly, to Strange's senses at any rate, a great deal quieter and darker. Trailing beards of mistletoe hid lamps and candles, and the dense canopy of branches blocked out the moon. Yet none of Venice's inhabitants appeared to notice the least change. Strange had often read how men and women could be cheerfully oblivious to magic going on around them, but never before had he seen an example of it. A baker's apprentice was carrying a tray of bread on his head. As Strange watched, the man neatly circumvented all the trees he did not know were there, ducking this way and that to avoid branches which would have poked his eye out. A man and a woman dressed for the ballroom or the redotto, with cloaks and masks, came down the Salitza San Moise together, arm in arm heads together, whispering. A great tree stood in their way. They parted quite naturally, passed one on each side of the tree, and joined arms again on the other side. Strange followed the line of, gl of glittering light down an alley to the quayside. The trees went on where the city stopped, and the line of light led through the trees. First of all, do you remember what was depicted in that painting of Venice 
that uh, um, Mrs. Wintertown had, old Mrs. Wintertown, the painting that she gave to her daughter and Sir Walter Pole when they got married. Do you remember what it depicted? Well, quiz here. Anybody recall? Venice, right? But specifically what? She explained it to Norrell, who asked about it. Yes, yes, the wedding. The wedding, the marriage of... The marriage of Venice and the sea, right? Venice is not just a borderline place. We talked about, you know, boundaries and borders and and how Venice is sort of this kind of liminal space. Um, But it's more than just a boundary, right? It's a marriage of two things. Venice is not just a, a, a seaside city, right? It is the merging of land, is the marriage of land and sea, right? The marriage of a terrestrial city with the, with the water, with the ocean. And um, so there's a way in which Venice is already this sort of overlapping place, and that's exactly what Strange perceives here. And one of the questions, of course, that um, I immediately think of when reading this description, this, you know, as his eyes are being opened to what's going on around him, is basically, is what he's seeing a change, or is what he's see, or is are his eyes merely being opened to that which always normally happens, right? As he himself perceives the um, the people walking around, right? Don't even it's it's not an illusion. They're not walking through the trees as if they're not there, right? It's not a question of there's earthly Venice and then there's fairy super a fairy wood superimposed upon it, right? And you know the people are in the are are in the the terrestrial Venice, right? And so they they pass through the the fairy trees as if they're not there. That's not what happens, right? They have to duck and walk around the fairy trees. Presumably, the uh, the guy carrying the tray of bread on his head would gouge his eye out if he ran into one of the branches, but he doesn't. He ducks around them, right, and evades those branches. They're really there. They're really re- they are real to them, but they don't perceive them. They're totally unaware that they occur. So they live in this overlap, but they don't see it. Is Jonathan merely becoming uh, uh, able to see... That seems to be... Remember, that's the distinction with madness. That's the distinction with madness that we saw with King George, right? He could see the gentleman and carry on a conversation with him, whereas Jonathan could neither see him nor hear him. That seems to be... the, And, of course, that's the change that Jonathan effects through the tincture of madness, right? That he... Um, he becomes able to see the fairy where the fairy had been able to conceal himself from him before. Um, so... I'm inclined towards the latter idea that the two of those things, fairy and Venice, are always overlapped. Um, people are always going around trees that they don't know are there, but nobody, not only do they not notice it, people don't notice them doing it, right? Nobody notices people dodging under branches and things as they walk around Venice, but presumably they are really doing that all along. And what um, Strange is doing is perceiving this for the first time. 
Um, and the way that Venice works is a kind of symbol for this. You know, the way that Venice, and with the marriage of Venice and the sea, um, it serves as a kind of metaphor, I think, for England and fairy, really. Um, yeah, good. John Moline points out points to the, uh, the the vision of the candles in people's heads, right? That does seem, John, as if he is, in fact, seeing a visual representation of their soul, right? There is a sense, of course, in which people are going around with candles in their heads, and they can be blown out pretty quickly, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, let's look at... So this is Jonathan crossing over to Ferry for the first time. Let's look at Jonathan crossing over into Insanity for the first time. It was, so this is, he's just put the mouse in his mouth, right, uh, in the cat lady's room. It was like plunging beneath a waterfall, or having 2,000 trumpets sound in one's ear. Everything he thought before, everything he knew, everything he had been, was swept away in a great flood of confused emotion and sensation. The world was made again in flame-like colors that were impossible to bear. It was shot through with new fears, new desires, new hatreds. He was surrounded by great presences. Some had wicked mouths full of teeth and huge burning eyes. There was a thing like a horribly crippled spider that reared up beside him. It was full of malice. It had, he had something in his mouth, and the taste of it was unspeakable. Unable to think, unable to know, he found from God knows where the presence of mind to spit it out. Someone screamed. Um... What do we see? It doesn't sound like a, this. His first experience with it isn't like crossing a boundary, right? It's not like, and suddenly a new world is open around. And notice the differences between this and the other, right? When he is able to walk into fairy for the first time, he doesn't go to fairy. Fairy comes to him, in a sense, right? Or rather, he sort of sees the fairy that is all around him and is able to walk out into it. By the way, where does he go? Where does he go in order to uh, uh, to, to enter fairy? Right after that previous scene? Do you remember? Where does the pa- where does the, the, the shining path, the, the, the line of light, where does it lead him? Into the woods which are... Yeah, into the ocean. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The ocean, the thing that Venice is being married to. Right? Yeah, he walks off the pier uh, and into and into the water. Um, yeah, and then, good, Donna points out that water images are used to describe the crossover to madness here, like plunging beneath a waterfall, absolutely. Um, here the description is, it's not about having his eyes opened all of a sudden. That seems to be what he's hoping for, right? Um, but that's not his first experience. Um his first experience is good, Michael. Um, Michael says water is a kind of mirror. Yeah, thinking about waters and mirror, water and mirrors and silver basin and the ocean as the path to fairy. Lots to think about there. Um, the relationship between water and magic and seeing and fairy. Um, there's a lot I think that we can do with that. 
Anyway, okay. Um, he seems to want to to sort of hope that his eyes are going to be open in certain ways. Later on, we do see that this happens, or it happens in sort of perhaps kind of undependable ways, or ways which seem perhaps not immediately useful. The visions of the candles in people's heads, and his uh, his um, sudden and unexpected insight into the true malevolence of pineapples. Um, but but it's not just, hey, now I can see fairies, right? At least not right away. It's to get the dosage correct, right? Before he has that kind of experience here, he is overwhelmed. So, in a sense, it it is like he is having his eyes open to something. It's just what his eyes are open to he can't handle, right? All of his senses are completely overwhelmed. This great flood of confused emotion and sensation. Donna, you're right. There we get some more water imagery, right? Um... Uh, yeah, so, and anyway, um, I would suggest that here um, uh, he is, in fact, seeing into this other reality, right? It is like he's seeing, Kate uh, Neville suggests that it's like he's seeing into every part of fairy and hell together all at once. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, all of these things and the great presences and everything, um, yeah, Karita, he's not just overwhelmed, but overwhelmed with horrible things. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, well, but there are horrible things out there. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, this is too much, right? He's, he's not got the, you know, he has the entire mouth, mouse in his mouth here, um, and uh, he has to get it down to only just a couple drops of the tincture of madness that he makes from the corpse of the mouse, uh, in order actually to be able to get his senses opened to this other world through madness, um, which enables him to walk in, to see fairy and to walk into fairy. Um, but um, this first experience is one of complete um, complete overwhelmedness. Um, look at, speaking of overwhelmed, let's look at another very overwhelmed person's insight, and that is Drawlight's vision, which I found really interesting. And I want to think about this in the context of what Strange's experience was. He thought he stood upon an English hillside. Rain was falling. It twisted in the air like grey ghosts. Rain fell upon him, and he grew thin as rain. Rain washed away thought, washed away memory, all the good and the bad. He no longer knew his name. Everything was washed away like mud from a stone. Rain filled him up with thoughts and memories of its own. Silver lines of water covered the hillside like intricate lace, like the veins of an arm. Forgetting that he was or ever had been a man, he became the lines of water. He fell into the earth with the rain. He thought he lay beneath the earth, beneath England. Long ages passed. Cold and rain seeped through him. Stones shifted within him. In the silence and the dark, he grew vast. He became the earth. He became England. A star looked down upon him and spoke to him. A stone asked him a question, and he answered it in its own language. A river curled at his side. Hills butted beneath his fingers. He opened his mouth and breathed out spring. He thought he was pressed into a thicket in a dark wood in winter. The trees went on forever, dark pillars separated by thin white slices of winter light. He looked down. 
Young saplings pierced him through and through. They grew up through his body, through his feet and hands. His eyelids would no longer close because twigs had grown up through them. Insects scuttled in and out of his ears. Spiders built nests and webs in his mouth. He realized he had been entwined in the wood for years and years. He knew the wood, and the wood knew him. There was no saying any longer what was wood and what was man. All was silent. Snow fell. He screamed. <laughs> Kate is reminded of Ender's computer game. Yeah, it's just like what happens to the giant after uh, Ender kills it in mouse form, right? Though it crawls and crawls in through its eye and not its mouth. Um, what do we see here? What should we be thinking of? Not just Ender's game, presumably, but within within this story. First, let's sort of make some connections. Um, before we try to explain this thing sort of holistically, let's think about the details. What should we be reminded of? What should we be reminded of? What does this sound like? Interesting, Donna Smith says the moss oak. Um, you know, the kind of connection to other things, right? Um, like when the moss oak was talking about the other trees and not just the trees that are there. I just went to hang out with the trees. The trees that are there, the trees that have not grown yet, the trees that have already died. Um, yeah, good. Yeah, Kate, think of the, the prophecy about the... Uh, oh, the prophecy about the sky talking. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, yeah, it is. No, I agree. It is more of a prophecy than a vision. Um, and of course, we do get this anticipation, Michael. It is uh, a, a prophecy of what will happen to him upon his death, or rather, you could also say that upon his actual death, um, he fulfills the vision that has been given to him here. Um, but more, more, more. Where else have we heard stuff like this in the book? What should we be remembering from within the story when we read this? Where else have we seen this? What else? Who else? Who talks like this? Janice, yes, good. The ancient agreements between nature and fairy, or nature and the king. Absolutely. Those old alliances, right? Think about the experience that... Um, think about the experience that Childermas has, right? When Childermas is... When he's like the sky is speaking to him, and the rain is speaking to him, and he can't understand it, right? He can't quite get it. He can't read the writing on the sky, but he knows the sky is speaking to him, and he knows he hears these things, but he doesn't understand, right? Um, Draw light has that similar situ that similar um, uh, uh, situation, it, and it's like the gentleman with the thistle down hair. Remember the 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 experience that Stephen has when he hears the singing of the fairy, right? When the fairy is singing, and he hears all of earth singing to the earth in its own native language. That's what draw light becomes too. He becomes England. He is England, and England is him. Um, he became the earth. He became England. A stone asked him a question, and he answered it in its own language. S draw light here is going past. Um, going past the... It's like the experience of Strange, but far past the experience of Strange, right? Um, 
Strange is sort of getting access to sort of seeing fairy, right? To to perceiving fairy, to be able to go into fairy, to be able to interact with the gentleman with thistledown hair, um, like any like 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 any good madman, right? That was his goal, and he accomplishes that goal. Drawlight is becoming like the fairy, right? His the longevity of his existence, his connection with the land, um, his ability to speak with the stones in their native language, right? Um, his relationship with the star, right? A star looked down on him and spoke to him, right? The gentleman can talk to stars, right? Um, the, uh, uh, Noam, exactly. Magic is written in the rain. Absolutely, it's written in the rain. Mick, I agree with you. Mick Neal says, it seems like a window into how all magic works. Absolutely, it does. Um, this is how, this does seem to be how magic, how real magic works. And draw light is being made one with all of this stuff. He is being made more, you know, and Noamoy says uh, this makes draw light some kind of magician. It's like he is being drawn into and subsumed within magic. Kind of like Lascelles. Kind of like draw light himself. Remember their careers, right? The two of them were scoundrels and jerks who took advantage of others and preyed upon them uh, in different ways. And both of them seize onto Norrell and basically make their careers out of Norrell and they get drawn into the English magic business until more and more they are absorbed within the whole business of English magic, right? And that, and that becomes the their entire thing. Of course, it becomes Draw Light's Undoing um, as he is using the magicians as his, you know, the, he's using English magic as his sort of primary con, right? And loses because of it, right? He's taken down uh, and becomes imprisoned for debt because of this. Um, to see the way in which Drawlight and Lascelles sought to exploit and take advantage of magic, though they themselves didn't really have any respect for magic itself and didn't care for magic or for Mr. Norrell at all, um, yet they wanted to profit from it, right? They were exploiting it. And in the end, Norrell, or not Norrell, Drawlight becomes completely subsumed within magic itself. And it's a really fascinating kind of turn. It's not... The, I mean, remember the uh, Luke Croc, the Luke Crocodile, um stuff, right? When Strange threatens Drawlight with having his form altered to make outwardly manifest the truth of what was always within, right? That's what he threatens him uh, with. But he doesn't do it, right? If he's faking, um, you know, he just says, abracadabra, and then laughs at Drawlight. Um, but there's a sense in which what actually happens to him is not what Strange had threatened, right? Not only does he not turn into the kind of monster that, 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 uh, that Strange describes, um, but the ultimate fate of Drawlight is not, um, is not that kind of, like, literalization or, or or just outward manifestation of what he's always been. Instead, it's a kind of reversal, right? You sought 
to exploit magic for your own benefit. In the end, instead, you are going to be completely drawn into magic, um, and it's going to consume you. It's going you, you, it's, it's going to make you a part of it. Um, at Rachel Draper points out very rightly, so didn't Strange describe fairy as being beneath the earth? We certainly have the mound thing, right? Um, absolutely. Uh, so, so we, we do have. I mean, there's, there's a, there are moments in this description where Drawlight sounds kind of like the gentleman with the thistle-down hair. Actually, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Claudia says that Drawlight was more like a vessel for English magic while Lascelles falls prey to his own issues. Yeah, now Lascelles, what happens with Lascelles is more like what Strange threatened to Drawlight. That is, that as he as he lived um I don't know. It's not quite that neat. Um, His sensitivity to his own honor. But, but see, I don't know. It's complicated with LaSalle's. Because on the one hand, he talks a, a lot about honor, and he certainly is on his own dignity a lot. But, um... But yet, Nancy, his love of murder, that's really the main thing there at the end. Um, he really enjoys, it turns out, he really enjoys killing. Um, so that's the sense, Nancy, I think it's what I, where I was coming around to. Um, that's the sense in which I can see the ultimate fate of Lascelles being merely sort of the logical and just extension of the path that he himself had chosen and was walking. He is also consuming and destroying others callously. Um, you think of the fa- the fairy uh, that's sort of lurking in the castle and watching, right, who's set up this whole thing with the uh, the continual guardians who are always fighting um, there, you know, that, 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 that LaSalle's kind of gets sucked into. Um, that's kind of, in a sense, almost a caricature of LaSalle's himself, right? That he was... Um, he didn't exa- it's not that he particularly enjoyed the suffering of others and went out of his way to cause it um though he certainly disregarded the suffering of others um Lascelles is much more like the gentleman with the thistle down hair really um but um anyway I don't want to lose sight of this passage and the way in which in this vision that uh that draw light is given this prophetic vision that he's given as of course at least outward the at least the outward part in that last paragraph does in fact come true as we see um we can see him having this vision which is like strange's vision but he's being drawn into the whole magical and perhaps fairy experience much more much more thoroughly um Good. Nick Marazzo points out that Drawlight also becomes an unthanked and unrecognized servant, um, which is, yeah, perhaps the ultimate kind of uh, uh, sort of just punishment and reversal for him. Um, good. Okay. More on uh, sort of the crossing of of boundaries and and where those boundaries kind of come in. Let's uh, 
look at this from we've been looking at the sort of these crossovers into fairy or into ma- into madness from the human side. Uh, let's look briefly at the fairy side. So this is from Stephen and the gentleman with the thistle-down hair who are looking at the dogs, right? And the gentleman has just been telling the story of the delightful time when he uh, changed the hairs into men and the men into hairs, you remember. Um, oh, did you feel that? Feel what, sir? asked Stephen. All the doors shook. Stephen glanced at the stable doors. No, not those doors, said the gentleman. I mean the doors between England and everywhere else. Someone is trying to open them. Someone spoke to the sky, and it was not me. Someone is giving instructions to the stones and rivers, and it is not me. Who is doing that? Who is it? Come. The doors between England and everywhere and everywhere else. Those doors are closed, and someone is trying to open them. Someone spoke to the sky, and it was not me. Right? His old alliances. The alliances between the gentlemen. Right? He has an alliance with this guy. Um... The metaphor of the doors is interesting because we don't get that metaphor exactly. Um, that's not, that is from the human side. Strange doesn't perceive doors. The only place where we get um, the only place where we get talk about doors from the human point of view is in the um, talk about mirrors. Right? How mirrors can serve as doors, but. But even there, the, the, the metaphor of a door itself is not really used, and certainly not with this, this, uh, this concept that the gentleman points to here, that there are doors between England and everywhere else, and that those doors have been closed. This is a new way, but it sounds like a new way of thinking about something that we've been hearing about for a long time, right? Like about what happened when Jonas Glass left England about how English magic seems to have died, and everyone thought it had, it was, it's now merely historical. The magic that doesn't work anymore, that used to work. Even those Argentine magicians who described, like, magic that they used to see done all the time in their youth, which now just doesn't work anymore. Those same spells don't work anymore. Um... And here, the fairy is describing this as doors closed and someone trying to open those doors. Now, he doesn't... You know, who closed the doors? Did he close the doors? And someone else is trying to open them in his despite? That's not obvious. doesn't say that. Um, And I'm not sure at all that we would be safe in assuming that that was the case. Um... Uh, good. Michael was just suggesting the same thing too. He says, it "Seems that the gentleman closed the doors with those glass on the other side, keeping those glass out." Um, possibly, possibly, Michael. I don't know. I don't know. Um, why did Jonas Glass leave? Was he shut out? You know, we don't know. Um, there could have been this behind-the-scenes struggle. Perhaps it took place in Fairy, right? And the result was that Jonas Glass left England and the doors between England and everywhere else were closed. Um, we don't know. 
we don't really know that at all. I don't know. I um, um, I'm disinclined to believe it, just from what we see of Janos Glass. But um, Janos Glass seems to have authority over fairies. He ruled a kingdom in fairy as well. He, he was king in both places, equally king in fairy and in England. And I. I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, Mick says that the uh, the fairy seems to assume that only one entity can have an alliance with the powers at one time. I'm not completely sure about that. Um, the gentleman certainly... I mean, the gentleman saying someone spoke to the sky and it was not me, he seems to be shocked by that. I don't think that that means like that he is someone's moving in on the sky, you know, and trying to edge him out. Um, remember, Mister Norrell worrying about a rival, right? I don't think we're hearing necessarily that same anxiety from the fairy here, but rather, it's been four hundred years that the fairy has been able has been the only one. Nobody has spoken to the sky other than him in the last four hundred years. It would seem. Um, so he seems to be shocked. And it seems like those doors have to be opened for that kind of communication to be able to happen, right? Um, remember, the communication between the sky and England failed with Childermas, Um, or at least was indistinct. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, the question several people are asking about, um, John Moline, for instance, was asking, uh, you know, the, 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 the gentleman with the thistle-down hair seems to be the only fairy. Has he locked any everyone else out? Yeah, I mean, he's a king. Um, he doesn't seem to be, like, the only overlord. I mean, he speaks of many fairy kingdoms and considers giving Stephen a crown in some of them, right? Um we know that there were multiple fairies and uh, uh, back in the Oriates days, right? Um, so, it's certainly not true. Obviously, it's, he's not the only fairy. Is there are other fairies in his court. He doesn't even seem to be the only fairy king. He does seem to be, so far as we can tell, the only fairy with any authority who currently has any interest in England. Um, I don't know if there are other fairies who make other countries their special domain, but this one certainly seems to be... Uh, fixated on England and has been fixated on England. Southern England, London, remember, for some time. Um, let's keep looking at the shaking of the doors and what comes on after that. More on crossing boundaries. Um, another moment where we can see the juxtaposition, where we can see Fairy and England together, and that's at Staircross. Behind the stone and oak passages of Staircross Hall, a vision of another house leapt up. Childermas saw high corridors that stretched away into unthinkable distances. It was as if two transparencies had been put into a magic lantern at the same time, so that one picture overlaid the other. 
the impression of walking through both houses at once, rapidly brought on a sensation akin to seasickness. Confusion mounted to his mind, and, had he been alone, he would soon have been at a loss to know which way to go. He could not tell whether he was walking or falling, whether he climbed one step or mounted a staircase of impossible length. Sometimes he seemed to be skimming across an acre of stone flags, while at the same time he was scarcely moving at all. His head spun, and he felt sick. Stop! Stop! he cried, and sank to the ground with his eyes closed. Um, by the way, um, I, um, it was in this scene when I thought, I, I was, Staircross, the name, Staircross, had, uh, uh, I didn't know what to make of it when we first, I'm like, Staircross? You know, it, okay, cross in the sense of, presumably not in the sense of, like, the Christian cross, so, uh, I mean, at least there was no reason I could think of to associate it with the cross, um, capital C, but, um, so cross as in, like, a crossroads or something, and I'm like, stairs, like a pun on S-T-A-I-R, like an ascension or something, I, I, I wasn't getting it, I didn't get it, um, and, uh, when we get to this scene, and I'm like, oh, wait a second, no, stare, like S-T-A-R-E, how it's spelled, right? As in staring with your eyes, but you're staring cross-eyed, right? Like you're seeing double images at once. That's, that's, um, uh, yeah, and, Michael, it does suggest star-crossed as well, doesn't it? Um, but, um, anyway, um, Okay. Here we see Childermas and, of course, John Segundus can see both things at once, right? Things have changed in England so that now they can see this. They can see something that is quite... They have. They are granted a vision now, at least here, um, which uh, John... Uh, Jonathan Strange had to take tincture of madness in order to see himself, Right? Why? Why can they see this? It's a madhouse, right? Isn't that wonderful, Noam? Right? It's a, this is the perfect madhouse. The house itself is mad, right? It's not just... It's a madhouse in a literal sense. Not just a house where you send mad people to. The house itself is mad. Why? Why is the house mad? Why do they see double here? Why can they see lost hope overlaid with Staircross Hall? Janice Hopper says that uh, seeing the spelling of it, Janice was admitting that she's listened to the audiobook multiple times, so it's kind of a revelation. Uh, seeing it in print for the first time, Janice, I totally am with you there. Um, it was only when I was looking it up after the fact, because I've been listening to the audiobooks too, that I was like, oh, S-D-A-R-E! That makes so much more sense. But anyway, yeah. Um, uh, more, more, more. Why? Why? Why here? Why here? Why now? Why? Well, why now? We saw before, right? Because the doors are opening between England and everywhere else, right? Those doors are open now that weren't open before, but why here? Why isn't this phenomenon coming up in lots of other places? Why stair cross?
Do you remember? Lady Pole is there, yes, but I don't think she causes it. Yeah, it's an access point. Yes, it is. Maria Absalom, well, Donna, he saw, Strange saw Maria Absalom and Segundus, right? Um, that wasn't at, that wasn't at uh, Staircross, that was at that other house, but what does it have in common? Why, why Staircross Hall? Because it's an old run-down house. And all ruins belong to the Raven King, right? All these old run-down houses, the Raven King owns them, right? They are the domain of the Raven King. Um, and the Raven King seems to have opened the doors between England and everywhere else. And so at those places which are traditionally associated with the Raven King, not just the particular sites like Newcastle and whatever, but but these places that's... Uh, yeah, well, John... Yes, Lady Pole's dual residency is important, but I don't think it's... But that's not the cause, exactly. Um, I don't believe that that's the cause, anyway. Um, they are seeing it. You could say that it's the cause of... It's a... I mean... It's a cause in one sense. Uh, uh, thinking about like different uh, uh, Aristotelian kinds of ca- of causation, right? Um, I would say Lady Pole's dual existence in England and in Lost Hope is what they're seeing, but it's not why they're seeing it. Do you see what I mean? What makes the dual residency of Lady Pole visible to them is, and it's, it wasn't like this before. Um, John Segundus didn't have this experience when he first came to Staircross Hall. It's happened now that the doors between England and everywhere else have been shaken. Right now that the doors have been opened, now they can see this thing that had been the case before. Segundus got a glimpse of it. Remember, a brief glimpse, um, but. Now he can't even walk around. He's got to be led around by the hand because he is with his eyes closed. Otherwise, he'll get dizzy and disoriented, right? It's changed now. Um, and it's changed because those doors have been shaken. And in these places, these places which belong to the Raven King, now these things are visible, I think. Um, anyway, um... Um, and yes, no, the effect disappears when Lady Pole is released from the spell because, again, what they were seeing, they don't see anymore because it's gone, right? Um, she was in two places at once. So, But, but again, my, my point is that wasn't what was opening their eyes to it. That was what their eyes were being opened to. And so when the, when the, um, when the effect goes away, they don't see it anymore. Um, it might be splitting hairs. I might be wrong about that. Um, but again, I'm thinking back to 
the, you know, the end of this book is, to me, is the end of this book is all about the Raven King, and I can't help but think back to all of those references. These are the things that jumped out at me so much the second time through the book, right? All of those moments early in the book where this stuff gets tossed out, right? All old houses, all ruins belong to the Raven King. And it's like, oh, okay, right. Um, reading through the second time when I came to those passages in the earlier parts of the book, I was immediately th- I was thinking about Staircross and Hurtview, um, and what was you know what was going to be happening in the later parts of the book. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let me keep going. I've got I don't even want to tell you how many slides I actually have to get through today. Um, Segundus, uh, I I love how Segundus almost has things figured out by himself, right? By himself, he has almost figured out what's going on. Um, So she or they began, that is when Lady Pole is trying to explain, and both of the Lady Poles are talking, but the Lady Pole who is in England and saying nonsense about about, um, songbird herds is drowning out what the what the lady pole trapped in fairy is trying to say. Immediately, Mr. Segundus took a memorandum book out of a pocket of his nightgown and began to scribble notes. But in Childermas's eyes, the two versions of lady pole were no longer speaking as one. The lady pole who sat in Staircross Hall told a cha- tale about a child who lived near Carlisle, but the woman in the blood-red gown seemed to be telling quite a different story. She wore a fierce expression and emphasized her words with passionate gestures. But what she said, Childermas could not tell. The whimsical tale of the Cumbrian child drowned it out. "'There, you see!' exclaimed Mr. Segundus, as he finished scribbling his notes. "'This is what makes them think her mad, these odd stories and tales. "'But I have made a list of all she has told me, "'and I have begun to find correspondences between them and ancient fairy lore. "'I am sure that if you and I were to make inquiries, "'we would discover some reference to a set of fairies "'who had some close connection with songbirds. "'They may not have been songbird herds, that you will agree. "'Sounds a little too much like a settled occupation for such a feckless race. "'But they may have pursued a particular sort of magic related to songbirds, "'and it may have suited one of their number to tell an impressionable child "'that she was a songbird herd.'" Um, can I just say, as a side note, isn't John Segundus adorable. I mean, he is so cute. I just want to fold him up and put him in my pocket. Um, but notice how close he is, right? All by himself. And and I love this glimpse. John Segundus and Childermas, both of whom are here, right? Um, they are... Um, they are... the representatives of the rest of the English magicians, right? We're told strange insists, and we have reason to believe, and of course all of these stories begin pouring in that Eng- that magic has returned to England and that there are magicians now all over England, um, that the connection between England and its people uh, and their connection to magic has returned and has grown. Segundus and Childermas are, the, are the, 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 the sort of the two poster children of that, right? Um, Segundus by himself, without the assistance of Stranger Norrell, has recognized something that Mr. Norrell himself never, never caught on to, right? And that is the the madness thing, right? That, okay, yes, you know, Norrell knows that the Oriates had a different perspective towards madness, and that the Oriates believed that fairies respected mad people and had an affinity with them. 
But Norrell seems to, pu- to push that in the other direction, right? This only proves that fairies are mad, and therefore unreliable. Um, but he doesn't think it about it the other way, right? That the things that, that apparently mad people say, the apparently mad things that apparently mad people say, are in fact just referring to things that other people don't know about, and only seem disconnected from the point of view of somebody who's really only seeing half of the picture, right? Who can't see the candles in people's heads and the trees growing up in the middle of Venice and all that kind of thing, right? Um, Segundus gets it, right? He gets the fact, he says there's something in she's not really mad at all. What she's saying, there are correspondences between what she says and actual fairy lore. So he gets the fact she's not just saying disconnected and irrational things. Um, But he doesn't make the final step, right? Um, To recognize what Childermas himself can see, that that wasn't what she was meaning to say at all, that this is the effect of a spell. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Philip Lord says, you know, when he tells Childermas that he thinks <laughs> Lady Pole's malady is magical. Yeah, it's like, you think? Right? Well, yeah, but again, nobody else sorted that out, right? So good old, good old John Segundus. I love John Segundus. Um, uh, he's not one of my favorite characters in the sense that, you know, I find him one of the most sort of fascinatingly drawn characters. But as far as, like, characters in this story for whom I have most affection, John Segundus is really high up uh, high up on the list. Um, Nancy, what a marvelous... Um, what a marvelous observation. Nancy Fosberg says, I love how this is done with a footnote. So we're getting the same effect as Childemus of both of these things happening at the same time. Yes, the conversation between John Segundus and Childemus, while this voiceover is giving us this footnote telling us the story of the Cumbrian child and the songbird heard. In fact, Nancy, I'd go one step further. Um, Most of the time, and Correct me if you find other examples of this that I've missed. Again, I will admit, I primarily listen to the audiobook version, so there might be times... And the audiobook version interrupts um, the... It, it reads the footnote immediately. You know, it you get the superscription, and it reads the footnote right away. Um, so a sentence, for instance, which has like four different footnotes in it, it will interject... The, the audiobook interject the, interjects the footnote content into the middle of that sentence, um, as if you were to go down and read it as soon as the number comes up. Um, so I might be mistaken about this, but notice that Mr. Segundus's reference to the songbird heard in that second paragraph is entirely dependent upon the content of that footnote. If you skipped the footnote, you wouldn't have the faintest idea what Mr. Segundus was talking about. All it said in the text was that she was telling a story about a child who lived near Carlisle, um, and then later it calls it the whimsical tale of the Cumbrian child. She didn't say anything about songbird herds or anything in the text, only in the footnote, right? So, Nancy, if you didn't read the footnote, if you didn't get the other side of that double vision... It would sound like it would sound disconnected, right? Segundus would sound mad. Why is he going on about songbirds and songbird herds, right? Um, I, I, Nancy, I love that observation, um, and I think that that works really, really well. That's a fascinating way to think about the footnotes, and totally different, really, from how I was thinking about the footnotes earlier on. But tell me if you guys can find any other examples. Um, 
tell me if you can find any other examples about um, uh, about where that kind of thing happens. That is, where where references later on in the text only make sense if you've read the footnotes. I don't mean this in the sense... Yeah, John points out that the, um, the uh, you know, the knowledge about the song Bird Heard is assumed, you know, that Segundus and Childermus both knew that story, so it, it would be assumed knowledge. Right? No, but my point is it's not assumed to us. Right? It's not like... M- there are many examples of footnotes where, like, between Childermus and Norrell, right, when they refer to the names of spells, and then we get a footnote explaining what that spell actually is and what it does. Right? And, yeah, it's true, it's not explained in the text because Childermus and Norrell don't need to explain it to each other, right? So they just toss off the name and the other one knows what they're talking about, and we need the footnote in order to explain what that spell is. But that's extra information, we don't have to know that. And there's nothing in the later narrative which relies upon the content of that footnote for it to make any sense to us, the reader. Do you see what I mean? So if we did skip over it, like, we might wonder, for instance, what the, what was that, the unrobed ladies, uh, right, that, that, uh, one of my favorite footnotes in the whole book, actually, the, uh, this is one of many examples in which the, uh, the, the, the actual spell is a good deal less exciting than the name, ex- the name suggests. Um, but, um, but anyway, so it's 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 um, it's I mean yeah. So we might uh, be a little curious about the unrobed ladies, but but the rest of the nar- nothing in the narrative depends upon the explanation of the unrobed ladies. Do you see what I mean? Um, we would be left in ignorance about some things if we didn't read the footnotes. But nothing we would not fail to be able to follow their conversation. But here in this case. In this very moment of the overlaid conversations, Nancy, exactly like you pointed, such an elegant observation. Just love it. Um, we get that right, such that uh, such that that second paragraph, Mister Segundus's explanation, actually would sound crazy. Um, it w- I mean, it's, uh, perfectly inexplicable. All right, let's uh, more. Let's think about the old alliances. Let's look at how this works now that the doors are opening. Let's see the actual effect of this. Um, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Timothy Fisher is saying that he thinks that uh, uh, it's 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 a thing that Tolkien missed. Tolkien needs more footnotes. You know, Timothy, I think it's a really interesting point, actually. Um, I don't want to get sidetracked onto this, because that's an... But it's... It would be a really fascinating point of co- of comparison, I think. Um, Timothy, in fact, here, Timothy, I'll throw this back out to you. This is a fascinating. This would be a great paper topic uh, for uh, for for like a myth moot or or or, or mid moot presentation, comparing and contrasting the textual frames of the Lord of the Rings and Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell. That is the way that the texts are presented. Um, the fictional frame of the composition of the text itself. Um, so thinking about the footnotes, primarily, of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, and the way, the kind of relationship that those footnotes encourage us to have with the story, and to compare and contrast the kind of relationship that the fictional frame of Tolkien's stories, um, the idea that these are sort of manuscripts handed down, and the fact that we get, not within the story, well, some of it, 
to some extent within the story, but most of it outside the story, uh, in the introduction and in the appendices, um, where we're invited to sort of think about how this text came to be passed down and brought before us, and the way that the, how that the kind of relationship that that establishes between us and the story, compared to the kind of relationship that uh, Clark's footnotes establish between readers and her story, really, really neat, um, really cool, uh, really cool example. But um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Brian, I agree. I agree that Tolkien wouldn't, I mean, Tolkien didn't do that, right? And it does seem, in a sense, antithetical to Tolkien's whole sort of mythic project. But how and why? Yeah. Anyway, I'll leave that to you guys. Let's move on. Um, oh, the old alliances. I already advanced to that. Okay. Here's the gentleman with the thistle down here, he talks about how he does his magic, right? He says, I merely need to speak to the wind, and it and and it's pleased to, you know, to do his bidding, right? Here's the place where we see the gentleman using magic, right? And we see him, you know, transporting himself and Stephen all over the place and stuff, but, but this is the big moment. This is when he does something which he considers very difficult. This is him casting the curse upon Jonathan Strange, which leads to the movable pillar of darkness and solitude around Jonathan, right? The gentleman with the thistle-down hair raised his hands. The great hall was filled with a flock of birds. In the blink of an eye they were there, in the blink of an eye they were gone. The birds had struck Stephen with their wings. They had knocked the breath out of him. When he recovered enough to lift his head, he saw that the gentleman with the thistle-down hair had raised his hands a second time. The great hall was full of spinning leaves. Winter dry and brown they were, turning in a wind that had come out of nowhere. In the blink of an eye they were there, in the blink of an eye they were gone. The magician was staring wildly. He did not seem to know what to do in the face of such overwhelming magic. He is lost, thought Stephen. The gentleman with the thistle-down hair raised his hands a third time. The great hall was full of rain, not a rain of water, a rain of blood. In the blink of an eye it was there. In the blink of an eye it was gone. The magic ended. In that instant the magician disappeared, and the gentleman with the thistle-down hair dropped to the floor like a man in a swoon. What do we understand about this? What do we see happening in this scene. He appears to be calling on his alliances, right? How? How does this work? What happens? First we get birds, then we get spinning leaves, right? So we have the wind, the leaves, and then we get the rain. So notice how this sounds like many of the things that we hear, like many of the things that, you know, the stone, you know, water speaks to stone, stone speaks to, right, you know, tree speaks to stone, uh, uh, people are speaking to different people, right? Um, uh, it sounds like that, sounds like the elements of that anyway, right? We get birds, which sounds kind of Raven King-ish, Right? They're not ravens, or at least we don't know what kind of birds they are. It's just a flock of birds. And we get the hall with leaves. Winter dry and brown leaves. 
and then we get rain. Not a rain of water, but a rain of blood. Um, Mick, yes, it's very ritualistic, right? Um, uh, like a curse through poetry, Mick says. Um, yes, the repetition seems important, right? Um, and those italicized words, those italicized words have been a signal before of a kind of perception of something else, right? Like those flashes when um, the the we saw that kind of thing when Vinculus delivers his prophecy. We saw that kind of thing when Childermus has his experience where this magic is breaking in on him. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it is, Janice, it is incantatory. Um, and it, and Janice, that, that, it seems to be giving us a glimpse of how, sort of, what the, the gentleman is doing. Right? Stephen's own senses are too bewildered by what happens. He is affected by these things, right? You know, he's, um, the birds are striking Stephen with their wings. Um, he's affected by these things. So he's too overwhelmed to really sort of watch, and he can't just sit back and watch dispassionately what the magician is doing. So instead, the narrator kind of creates an effect for us. There does seem to be ritual, perhaps there are ritual phrases which the gentleman is using. Um, yeah, Kate sees the, sees an association between the gentleman and these things. Um, we've got dead leaves. The rain is not a rain of water, like the kind of rain which would nourish the ground. It's a rain of blood. Um, the birds, um, it presumably the gentleman with the thistle-down hair is not a songbird herd, right, Kate? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, what um, What's he doing? What's the result? What happens to Jonathan? What does he, the gentleman, bring about as a result of this? He's going to make him suffer in ways that nobody else has suffered. He's banished, yeah. Darkness and despair within this eternal darkness. When you come inside that darkness, what do you notice? People do see things. They keep observing this one phenomenon. Remember? Stars, yes. The different stars, John, exactly. The different stars. They look up and, they, and the stars have changed. Right? The blackness, the, it's not mere lack of light. Right? He's not just excluded light from around where Jonathan Strange is. He, instead, it's like he has shut Jonathan into somewhere else. And the somewhere else follows him around, right? And you, if you look up, you can see the skies of the the stars of the somewhere else. That place is a dark place, apparently, right? Um, but it's not England. Um, it's uh, lonely. Well, Byron can come, but other than that, it's pretty lonely. Um, look at what happens. Um, with Stephen and the gentleman. I'll start... Well, first let me read the text, and then I'll talk about my rather complicated subtitle here. The bare branches against the sky were a writing, and, though he did not want to, he could read it. 
he saw that it was a question put to him by the trees. Yes, he answered them. Their age and their knowledge belonged to him. Beyond the trees was a high snow-covered ridge, like a line drawn across the sky. Its shadow was blue upon the snow before it. It embodied all kinds of cold and hardness. It hailed Stephen as a king it had long missed. At a word from Stephen it would tumble down and crush his enemies. It asked Stephen a question. Yes, he told it. Its scorn and strength were his for the taking. Um, I love the fact that we do not know what is the question that they asked him that he is saying yes to, nor do we know the question that he asked them to which they say yes. We can kind of infer what his question is to them. Um, something like, would you please destroy the gentleman with the thistle-down hair? Yes, they say. Um, uh, we don't know the question that they ask him that he says yes to. Um, Kimber is wondering if it's the same question I do too. It may be something as simple as, are you the king? And he says yes. And when he says yes, their age, their knowledge, their scorn and strength uh, are him. Are you the nameless slave, Rickle? Yeah, exactly. That may perhaps be the question. But again, I love the fact that the question is never stated because we don't speak the language of the sky and the trees and the river or the beck, to use that lovely old Anglo-Saxon word. Um, my subtitle, as I said, is sort of probably unnecessarily complicated. Um, uh, if you don't recognize it, and there's uh, no compelling reason why you must, um, this is a, a couple of lines from um, from uh, T.S. Eliot's Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, which I could not be reminded of, um, but I wanted to quote them because they're different from what's going on here, and uh, perhaps it's, it's perhaps way too convoluted, but Jalfred Prufrock in this poem is all torn up with his own interior, internal problems. Um, but this, um, uh, I, I kept remembering, you know, with this, this scene, when I was reading this scene this past time, I kept remembering the overwhelming question uh, which keeps coming up in the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And, um, um, and this particular moment where he says, you know, he, he, he wonders if he, if he should have squeezed the universe into a ball to roll it towards some overwhelming question. Um, for him, it's, for Prufrock, it's all about, would I be w- willing to sacrifice the world? Would I be willing to set the whole world aside in order to gain this thing for myself? You know, this, you know, this thing which is so connected with his identity, with his, uh, with, with the fulfilling of his desires. Um, it's about, would you give over the world for the sake of this thing that's internal to yourself. It's almost reversed in Stephen's case here. And here it's about the connection with the world, like draw light in a sense, right? Um, though, the, of course, the relationship between Stephen and the world is very different from the relationship between draw light and the world in that vision. But um, but it's about connection. It was about connection with the gentleman that we heard in his song um, when Stephen hears his song uh, in the swamps, right, as they're waiting for the uh, for dawn to uh, to enable them to dig up the moss oak. Um, it's, uh, so it, it, instead of, instead of saying like, well, you know, you've got the world over here and you've got your own personal identity over here. Um, instead it's, it's, it's combining those two things, right? The question, um, is about, a, is, is a question, uh, not of sacrifice of the world, not of setting aside the world, but of connection, um, with the world. 
Um, anyway, like I said, probably probably too roundabout. But let's let's carry on uh, to. Um, let's, let's keep going. Stephen closed his eyes. He spoke a word to the stones of the packhorse bridge. Yes, said the stones. The bridge reared up like a raging horse and cast the gentleman into the beck. Stephen spoke a word to the beck. Yes, said the beck. It grasped the gentleman in a grip of iron and bore him swiftly away. Stephen was aware that Lady Pole spoke to him, that she tried to catch hold of his arm. He saw Mr. Segundus's pale, astonished face, saw him say something, but he had no time to answer them. Who knew how long the world would consent to obey him? He leapt down from the bridge and ran along the bank. The trees seemed to greet him as he ran past. They spoke of old alliances and reminded him of time gone, times gone by. The sunlight called him king and spoke its pleasure at finding him here. He had no time to tell them. He was not the person they imagined. The connection between Stephen and the trees and the rocks and the river is a mistaken one, right? This is not a result of the doors between England and everywhere else being thrown open. This is not just about magic returning to England. This is a mistake, right? This gift, this access to this communication with the sky and the rain and the trees and the stones is being given to him by Norrell and Strange, right? By the spell that was recorded uh, in, what is it, Lanchester's book about birds, the language of birds or something. And then um, and then the story was told in Bellasis, right, about how uh, uh, Thomas Godbless, I think it was, um, did this magic for Jonas Glass, um, which pleased Jonas Glass very much. Um, But they're doing it under false pretenses, right? They're trying to do this for John Osglas, and instead they give this magic to Stephen Black. They give this power to Stephen Black. They give this connection between himself and England, this command. But they are have, in a sense, deceived England itself, right? England itself, the, the trees and the stones, are mistaking Stephen Black for the Raven King, right? Um... Noam, that's, that's, a, that's a wonderful concept. Noam Weiss says, at this moment, Stephen is the most English thing in the story, which is a mistake, right? He's not English. He was just hating on the English a few, you know, just just, just a little while back. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, John Moline says that Stephen is very Welling, Wellingtonian and not afraid uh, to use power. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. But Kimber, you are absolutely right. John Osglass set it all up, right? This is not happening in despite of John Osglass. This is not happening by... Like, this is not... For, nobody else understands what, what's going on, right? Stephen has no idea where this power is coming from or how long it's going to hold out. Um, Norrell and Strange have no idea that they're giving this power to Sir Walter Pohl's Negro butler, right? They don't... They don't, they, they, they don't nobody has any idea, but John Osglass knows, Right? Because he had the three of them, he had connected the three of them in his book from the beginning, right? The Nameless Slave and the Two Magicians. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
and John, I love the Wellington connection. Um, the old alliances, Janus classes, old alliances still hold, but they are being held by proxy by Stephen. Why? Why are they? Why did this happen? How did this happen? Because John Usglass concealed his name. Right? His true name. And as they are trying to find a way, as Norrell and Strange are trying to find a way to invoke John Usglass and to grant this power to John Usglass, to give this as a gift, present this as a gift to John Usglass, they instead present it to the nameless slave. So John Osgoss has done that to protect himself, right? To 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 to, to sort of shield and conceal his own um, uh, his own true name. Um, but also in doing that, he has also set up and anticipated this whole scenario, right? Which he had prepared for in his. Um, in his, in his book, right, which was vinculus, or which became vinculus after it was eaten by his father. Oh, Noam, you were on a roll. That is so cool. I did not think of that. Noam says, uh, notice that all of the most English characters, Stephen, right, who becomes, you know, one with England practically here in this moment, Lord Wellington, who is the 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 consummation of all things English, and Janos Glass himself. None of them are technically the Englishmen, right? Um, yeah, yeah, so cool. Um, all right, um, I think, um, and yes, they are all the spell that Jono's class is doing, and we'll. Um, I think I'm going to compress a little bit of what I was going to do. I'll start with it next time. I should be able to get through it more quickly than I had planned. Um, but I'll come back to this. Oh, I, I want to look at Jonas Glass's magic and the spell that Jonas Glass is doing for next time. I'll look at the ultimate sort of resolution, the fates of the magicians, the fates of the fate of Stephen Black, the fate of Vinculus and Childemus next time. And then we'll address some of the other topics and questions that you guys have. So don't forget to send me an email if there's something else that you guys want to talk about and do next time. And I will look forward to that. Um, thanks very much, everybody. Thanks for joining me. Uh, uh, it has been a really fun nine weeks. Well, we've got one more week, really. This is, Let's not kid ourselves. Next week is still equally a week, but with no assigned reading for next time. So if you've not uh, gotten caught up, you still can get caught ups and, and uh, be ready to discuss the end of the, the very end of the book with me next time. Anyway, thanks very much everybody. Good night. I'll see you guys next week. Bye now.